Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. This is Behind the Movement. I am Kyle Fincham. My guest today is Stephen Sashin. Thrilled that you're here. Thrilled that you're listening. Um, it's been a week of uh, a lot of messages uh, from people who have uh, just uh, maybe just discovering the podcast or just felt like they were. It was time to reach out. Um, so. Yeah, thanks to everybody who's uh, sent messages recently. It's been nice to uh, it's been nice to connect. Um, also, big thank you to everyone who was at the Infinite Play workshop this past weekend in Toronto. Um, that event was hosted by the Spirit Loft. My friends Andre and Catalina own the space and uh, bring the group together out there. And yeah, they're amazing. The group is amazing. Um, I can't wait to go back. Um, so yeah, big hugs all around to everybody who was there. It was a special weekend. Thank you so much. Um, this weekend, or excuse me, uh, next week, I am getting on a plane and I am flying directly to Vienna and then hopping on a train and I'll be headed out to Salzburg for the first event in Europe. That'll be uh, June 11th and 12th and that's hosted by Movement exploration Salzburg and then the following weekend I'll be on my way to Berlin after that Paris and then uh, many more dates going all the way through August all the information to sign up for those is on my website kylefincham.com also there's some early bird pricing I think ending in just a couple of weeks for a few events that are in July I think in London and Lisbon and Bielfeld. So if you want to get early bird pricing for those, um, highly recommend contacting me uh, and signing up before June 15th. I think those are my announcements. Yeah, if you're out in Europe, I'm looking forward to heading your way and uh, and seeing y'all soon. As I said, my podcast today is with Stephen Sashin. If you're not familiar with Stephen, let me give you a little bit of his background. He is a serial entrepreneur who has never had a job. He's a former professional stand-up comic and award-winning screenwriter and a competitive sprinter, one of the fastest men over 55 in the country. He and his wife, Lena Phoenix, co-founded the footwear company Zero Shoes, creating a movement movement, which has helped hundreds of thousands of people live live life feet first with happy, healthy, strong feet in in addictively comfortable footwear. Steven and Lena also appeared on Shark Tank where they turned down a $400,000 offer from Kevin O'Leary. This was a really wonderful conversation. It was such a pleasure to connect with Steven um, about a week after we, we, we recorded this episode. Uh, he invited me to be on his podcast, so that will be out soon and I will... Uh, let you know how to listen to that and when it's available um anyway big thank you to steven for uh for this conversation and the one that we had after um and here it is my conversation with steven sasha well you know what's interesting and i didn't realize this when we spoke before but you and i actually might have more to talk about than either of us realize um really i read your bio Oh, uh, which which I don't always do. Sometimes I just go <laughs> first. That's the truth. Um, but I saw that you did stand up. 
And that's why I moved to New York. I did stand-up comedy for 10 years. So did I. Really? When did you quit? Um, I moved out of New York. <clears throat> Let's see. I was doing stand-up from 83 to 93. Uh-huh. And then I moved to Colorado. And ironically, I ended up getting a job hosting a uh, show that's sort of like car talk, but for computers on television that was internationally syndicated. So uh-huh. I was kind of still doing it then. But I, I mean, I haven't gotten on stage in ages. I actually just went to a, um, a club here or not even a club. I went to a place that had a comedy night here in town with a guy that I was doing stand-up with, you know, 30 years ago in New York. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I started in LA in 2003 when I was in college. You're a child. Yeah. Moved to New York, did stand up for until about 2012 or 13. Love it. And then just dropped it. Why did you do that? I can tell, I'll, I'll tell you why I, why I did. Okay. Um, 93 was when the boom started slowing down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I was still making a lot of money and working every weekend and blah, blah, blah. But, um, but the boom was slowing down and there were a couple of things going on. One is that, um, I was not a guy who would just, you know, schmooze with people to, I mean, that wasn't my thing. I did the work. I walked in, I walked out. I mean, I hung out, but I didn't, but hanging out was not my life. And I was watching some of my friends get gigs clearly or like, you know, TV gigs, because clearly they were just hanging out and smoking dope with that guy who gave them the, that job. And that wasn't my thing. I also uh, had an issue about integrity and I had conversations, things like, if the gig starts at eight, but you want me there at seven, just in case, why don't you just tell me that rather than telling me the gig starts at six and I get there at four, cause I got shit to do. And then I'd never get booked by that guy again. Or, um, or uh, I'm calling it get rebooked. Uh, you didn't do so well the last time you were here. No, no, no. Uh, I middled and the headliner couldn't follow me. And I know that cause I used the tape of that set to get every other gig for the last year. So, oh yeah, you're right. I'm still not going to book you again. It's like, mm-hmm. Or my favorite was a guy calls me um, and uh, he said, I heard, uh, you know, this spot you had this weekend fell apart. Um, I can get you five shows for 200 bucks. I said, oh yeah, I can't do it. He goes, but this is a Thursday night and the gig starts tomorrow and you got nothing for the weekend. I said, yeah, but for that money, I'd rather stay home and jerk off. And then he calls me a year later and says, didn't we have some issue before? I went, no, you offered me a stupid amount of money. And I told you no issue. He goes, oh yeah, well, never mind." <laughs> <laughs> so that level of just, you know, I had a fondness for honesty, uh, did not fit in with what was going on in the industry. Oh, and then I had a fun one. I went out to LA and I auditioned at the improv, crushed the set, got off stage and was told there was a guy who had left New York who had stolen most of my act and had already been doing it on that stage. Really? I called his manager and I said, dude, the bits that he stole, I did on a TV show that you booked me on. What the fuck? And he goes, well, I can tell him not to do it in LA anymore. I went, are you kidding me? So, and then, but the, but the real kicker is that I then ended up um, inventing screenwriting software and I realized, oh, that looked like a retirement plan and what the hell. So, Mm -hmm. but why did you stop? Mine was much more artistic. Mine was more like, you know, like I was in the city and I was really like, you know, caught up in like the romance of like doing like, you know, five, six, seven shows a night and like, yeah. you know, running from club to club and yeah. that whole thing. And it was also at a time where like, you know, comedy was like pretty dark, especially at least in the clubs right. in New York. And, you know, I had moved to New York and I was, I don't know, I was doing something so different. I was such a big fan of like the Steve Martins and the Robin Williams and 
I don't know, I was doing so many characters and sounds and noises. And then, but I was 20 and I wanted to like fit in and I wanted to make it, you know, and I got kind of, I don't know, it's almost like greed kind of overtook my, my artistic integrity, call it. And, you know, I got into clubs, I got hosting gigs because I could host really well. Yep. And that was a nice little guarantee. And I was making some money and things were happening. But along the way, I was like, just kind of getting broken down by like not presenting things that were really in line with my values or what I wanted to see or what I wanted to present. But at the time I couldn't articulate that. I was just saying like, I'm, I'm depressed, you know? So fast forward to about 2000, I don't know, 10 or 11, I started working out of a gym to try to supplement my income. And I was really like taken by, I don't know, just like that it was this really positive experience on both sides of the equation for people, for me and for the people I was with. And I remember having this like inner monologue while I was on a show in uh, uh, at the Broadway Comedy Club, just outside of Times Square. It was like a midnight show in 2012. And I was killing and I just had this monologue inside where I was like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm done. And I walked off stage and never went back. And I had, I had like done like a single night, like headlining at Caroline's like two months before that, like things were, were going well, you know, um, but not well in the sense that I was really satisfied with what I was presenting. I didn't, it didn't feel like it mattered. It felt like I had adjusted for, for reasons that were, were not the kind of the pure reasons, you know? There, you know, there's a thing that happens where depending on where you are, there's just a strong normative influence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny because you could spot that's a Boston comic. That's a New York comic. That's an LA comic. That's a San Francisco comic because there's a kind of regression to the mean mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, and uh, it's sort of a, a shame. People ask me now, they go, do you go to comedy clubs? And I say, oh, no, no, no. They go, why not? I go, I'm allergic to the stench of desperation. <laughs> I, had, I had a great moment once I was on um, comedy you and uh, Jackie Mason's in the audience with two super hot hookers. And he came up to me at the end. He goes, Hey, you're a very funny guy. I said, Oh, thanks. He goes, you've been doing this. Uh, what? Two and a half years. I went exactly. He goes, yeah, you'll know why I said that in a while. And, you know, you can just sort of spot it now. And it's very entertaining. It's like that guy got a TV show. Now he's got a comedy special but he really didn't deserve it yet. He needs like three more years till it really is going to be worth having him do a special. But yeah. demand is so high for content right now. Oh my gosh. It's here. I mean, it's with, with Netflix and I also, I mean, I was going to say, I can't even imagine being a comic now with like everybody having iPhones in the ways that they do. And, and uh, well, that, it's weird. I'll tell you the show that I went to down the street, it was four young comics and then my friend mike who's 10 years older than i am mm -hmm. and it was fascinating because they're not in one of the big cities and seeing the kind of material that they're playing with was really interesting to me because it's revelatory in a way that would only happen as a result of social media in other words one of the guys who was more broish than anyone i've ever seen um, just does 20 minutes on how he's by, And the audience was like, cool, I'm going for the ride. And that was just not the kind of thing that you would ever pull off in any time prior to social media times. Because if you'd done that before, people would have been like, they would have then second guessed everything you said after that, because it would have been sort of shocking. And now it's like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, you're, you're polyamorous, you're bi, you're whatever it is. No one 
cared in a way that was really delightful, but it was also fascinating watching them work out their persona with a kind of um, honesty that is really novel. It was fascinating. Um, and one, and this is a week after the Academy Awards, and one of the guys did my favorite version of what's now emerging as this joke, where he said, "You know the actress from Silver Lining Playbook," and someone blurts out, "Sarah, Sarah, uh, um, uh, come on, Jennifer Lawrence." And without missing a beat, he goes, "Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth." And it was the, like perfect timing from like a twenty-year-old kid. It's like you nailed how to grab that meme. Um, and again, in a weird way, it felt to me like that was a social media bit. And it was literally like a meme that you just did on stage. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really interesting to see. And even though um, I don't know what your experience is, but my wife said to me the other day, you'll never stop writing jokes. Will you? I said, no, that's the way my brain works. Um, I have no interest in going back on stage, but you know, I'm suddenly going, I think maybe I need to sell some material to somebody. Well, I mean, listen, there's, it seems like there's so many avenues to, to put things out there with at this point. Yeah. As you said, it's like, there's um high demand for content. I couldn't watch standup for, I don't know, I guess I, like I said, I quit in 2012. I, it probably took me until about 2020 to like watch a special again. Cause I don't know. It's just like, it's you have to like get away. Like for me, I wanted to create distance. I wanted to like, yeah. Yeah. live a different life because it's so not what most people are living. Well, that's a fact. No, yeah. it's, it's a, it's funny. Um, uh, this guy in Denver that I mentioned, his name is Mike Langworthy. We were discussing how, how do I want to put it? Um, it's very difficult to have relationships with norm, normal people when you've spent years hanging out with comics where there's no holds barred. If it's funny, it's funny. Context is, you know, or context is and content are two independent things. Um, and, uh, he, and we were just discussing how, you know, you have to watch what you say around normal people in a way that's really exhausting. <laughs> I, well, I, I think that's what I meant. I was like, I felt like I had to like learn how to be in like regular society. Absolutely. Like I was like, I had to just like, there are a lot of times where I found myself being really quiet. And people were like, oh, I thought you did used to do stand-up. And I was just like, I'm just learning how to like be with you. <laughs> I'm learning how to be with people who aren't comics. Yeah. No, it's a it's um uh I mean, I've been out for 30 years now. It's a whole different game. But uh, but nonetheless, I mean, one of my closest friends, he wasn't he never did stand-up, may as well have done stand-up. And uh, you know, we're just not fit for human consumption. And then I call my friend, my handful of friends who still are doing comedy and same thing. I mean, you know, our conversations are, are usually here's things that we think are funny that we can't say to other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah they're, 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 they're very different conversations. You know what the other thing that I, I kind of had to deal with or attempt to reconcile with when I decided I wasn't going to do it anymore mm. is I was looking around and I was like, you know, some of these people who are like my friends or my contemporaries, like I'm going to watch them go off and like, and some of them are, are, are going to like achieve that thing that I moved to New York for like that, 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 that dream and witnessing that. Yeah. Cause now that kind of time has, has passed and yeah. seeing that thing happen. It's not a jealousy that I feel. It's just, it's almost a shock. It's almost like, 
going on logging on to Netflix and seeing like these people I used to do open mics oh. with and used to gig with all over. And now, yeah, no, I, I, we had a, a guy, the guy who ran comedy grand um, did a zoom meeting. There's like 25, 30 comics on. And, um, and I said, um, I just want to, I don't remember how I said it, but I said, I need to tell each one of you that I'm upset with you because I have pissed off some girlfriend in the past because every time we watch TV, I'm going, oh, I know that one. 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 That was my roommate. That was my roommate. Um, and they all thought I was just name dropping. I was just happy to see you. But nonetheless, um, yeah, it's it's a it's an odd thing. I was at a uh, at a party in L.A. Um, guy who had made it was very successful as a writer after he stopped doing stand up. And I was very self-conscious because I'd stopped doing stand up at that point by I don't know, maybe five years. And at that party, every other comic at that party came up to me at some point and said, so you're out of the business? I said, yeah. They said, man, we're so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and there are certain things that I, it would have been fun to be part of that world at this stage. But at the same time, like, here's a weird one. There are a couple of very successful sitcoms where I knew everybody on that show. I mean, front end, back end. Um, and I didn't find one line in that show funny ever. And those are most of the gigs you get mm-hmm. where it's like, um, I'm going to say the words, but I could not be having less fun. Mm-hmm. Anyway. It's an interesting world. And I, and it's, it's, yeah. And when I read that about you, I was like, Oh wow, this is a yeah. very strange connection we have here. It's a good one. It's a good yeah. one. Yeah, but it's well. Um, I, hate, I hate to say this, but I mean, we got to jump in because I've got a. The hell is this? I've got a something going on uh, at two forty-five my time. No pressure. I've got it. All right then. Yeah. No rush. No problem. We're also strangely double booked for that. Eh, whatever. I'll figure it out. So then, how did you? What made you? like, I don't know, take the following turns. I mean, you get out of standup and then it's like, then all of a sudden you're, you're diving into athleticism and, and entrepreneur, no, 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 becoming no. an entrepreneur. No, no, no. Um, so I've been an athlete my whole life. I started, I was a competitive diver starting when I was seven. I was an all-American gymnast in high school. I continued to train until I was in my thirties. I was a sprinter in high school as well. Mm-hmm. And then got into pole vault and long jump also. Um, I spent most of my 30s into my well actually my mid uh, wait uh um well when i was in new york i was still doing athletic things because i was doing stunt work so that was still really i was actually and i was and well yeah and um and then but when i moved to colorado when i was 32 i spent the next 13 years trying to find something that my body liked doing that there was a reason to do it so I got into circus arts, which was a whole lot of fun doing like Chinese pole and trapeze. But then I realized I'm never going to be in the fucking circus. So why am I doing this? It's really hard and hurts. So I stopped doing that. And then when I was 45 is when at brunch, a friend of mine had just won his first 5k. And I said, well, I was, I was always into sprinting, but I was never a runner. I don't run. And he says, well, you know, there's a whole master's track and field circuit uh, that has all the events, including all the sprints. It's like, no, I did not know that. And so that's what got me back into sprinting after a 30 year break. And I was getting injured like, you know, pretty much every other week for the next two years until someone suggested that world champion runner suggested I take off my shoes and see what I learned from being barefoot, you know, getting out of normal shoes. 
And I learned why I was getting injured and how to stop getting injured. Because when you're running barefoot, bad form hurts, good form feels good. And um, then the next thing you know, my, well, to abbreviate the story dramatically, uh, two years after starting sprinting again, and after making a bunch of sandals for people based on this whole barefoot idea, um, <clears throat> my wife and I uttered the dangerous entrepreneurial words, how hard could this be? And we started uh, a business in the most competitive industry in the universe. And here we are 12 and a half years later um, with you know, one of the fastest growing companies in America and helping hundreds of thousands of people discover the same thing we discovered, the benefits of natural movement. And as my wife puts it, um, there's no reason to start another shoe company because there's enough of them in the world, unless your shoes are changing people's lives. And that's what we hear about all day, every day. And here we are. And I'm still competing. So I'm a master's all-American sprinter. And that, um, so athletic stuff has been part of my life all along. And the entrepreneurial thing was running in parallel to that. Gotcha. But so, and, and somewhere along the way, though, you were, you were doing stunt work in New York. Yeah. While I was doing stand-up, I was doing stunt work. Really? I mean, not the same. Well, I was going to say not at the same time, except I did like, there was a bit in my act where I did a standing backflip. There was a bit in my act where I, I have this crazy high vertical leap, not as high as it was 30 years ago, but I you know, did some crazy things like that. I, my act had a lot of physical stuff in it. Um, I never thought of myself as a physical comic, mm-hmm. but when I think back, there was a lot of physical stuff in my act. How did you get into the, the stunt work? How did that come to be? Uh, cause one of the things on my resume was all American gymnast. And I got a call from my agent saying they're casting this commercial for a national car rental where you need to do a flip over a car. Mm-hmm. And I go to the audition and I see a bunch of professional stunt guys. They had set up a mini tramp and a big crash pad. They had to flip over and then another crash pad to land on. And I'm watching people warm up. And, um, I said, can I go last? And they're like, what? I go, can I, can I go last? And they went, all right, whatever. So I watched like 20 guys like barely make it or struggle to get over. And then I did my, I didn't even warm up. I just, you know, hit the mini tramp and like flew over this thing. And you could tell they went, uh, yeah, you're hired. So that got me into the union. And then I started hanging out with stunt guys because I could do gymnastics things that they couldn't do. And that, that's how it happened. It was fun. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. I'll give you my favorite story about it though. Mm -hmm. I got a call to do a Japanese print ad and they showed me a a drawing of what they wanted to do. So it's a guy upside down in the splits, holding a tray with a couple of uh, like glasses on it, like wine glasses. And they said, just do a backflip and do that. I went, can't do that. They said, what? I go, there's no way when you're doing a backflip, you can ever hit that position without killing yourself, but you can't even really hit that position. And they said, well, if you don't think you can do it, I went, once again, let me go third. <laughs> and so I listened to two guys crash and crash and crash. And then I came in and they, they were looking very disappointed. And I said, do me a favor, turn the camera upside down. And I just jumped in the air, did the splits with my hand out like this. And I said, and the, the picture came out. I said, turn the picture upside down. And they went, that's what we need. <laughs> and that was it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. So. Um, that, you know, that's so funny that you, that, that you did that because again, like as a kid, it was something that I was always so infatuated with. I was so infatuated with stunt work. I would lo- I loved going and watching like, you know, at Disneyland and, and Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California, they had like always had stunt shows. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, so taken by like that group of people. They're, uh, they're nuts, um, <laughs> flat out nuts. And, um, but really fun to hang out with. How long did you do that for? Um, 
10, 15 years. Wow. And, and do you do any of that type of stuff anymore or just do the running? Uh, I don't really. Um, the closest thing, no, is the simple answer. Um, in fact, I'm turning 60 in two weeks. Holy crap. And, um, wow, happy birthday. Uh, thank you. And so I have to go to the gym and uh, I haven't done a standing backflip in five years. So I've got to go do my 60th birthday standing backflip. So which the when I did it five years ago, um, it was really interesting because I kind of set it up and then I kind of blacked out and then I saw my feet hitting the ground and I stood it up. And so I've, I've done literally hundreds of thousands of them. Um, so it's still in my body, but my uh, kind of muscle memory but I don't have the, all the rest of the physiology to do it where I used to be very cognizant of the entire process. And now it's sort of like set it up, cross your fingers and, you know, your body's going to take over. So that's a little weird um, and kind of disconcerting, (laughs) (laughs) but what the hell. When, when you, what was like, I guess I'll fast forward a little bit. I'm curious about like, you know, you said, you know, you get this like entrepreneurial bug and it's like, how hard can it be? Yeah. Um, and as you were saying that, I started thinking about, um, I forget, what's, what's the guy's name who founded Nike? I, I read his book like a- uh, Bill Bowerman. Um, well, Bill, Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman, but it was yeah, Bauer, Phil, Bowerman yeah. first. Yeah, I read Phil Knight's book. Yeah. And, you know, I got this small glimpse into like- Oh, no, you didn't. No, uh, that both his book and Bar- I mean, both Bowerman and Phil Knight's book, uh, they gloss over a lot of it. If you want to read a, a more accurate description of the early days of Nike, uh, the book to read is called Swoosh. Mm. And, um, and even that is tame um, and, and glosses over quite a bit of things. The industry back then was insane and cutthroat and um, depraved and, uh, evil. And, uh, in many ways, a lot of those things are still true. The biggest one that's less true is the depraved version. Um, but, uh, it's, it is a, it is an insane industry and they, they downplay it quite a bit in those books because otherwise you would not like those people. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I remember reading it and thinking like, this is a real valiant attempt to like be likable. Or, or to, <laughs> yeah. to kind of and, and to kind of celebrate like what they achieved, but I'm also like I don't know. There's like there was a lot that was lost on it, and then ultimately, you know, it became this giant movement that like you know people forget like you know as great as these things are, like you know it's affected everybody's bodies in in horrible ways. Here's a start. Two things. One, remember history is written by the victors, mm-hmm. and the other is that <clears throat> in the early days, um, Bowerman was sharing a building with some orthopedic podiatrists. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm getting a bunch of new runners who are getting Achilles tendonitis. What do you recommend? And they said, oh, well, clearly their Achilles have shortened from wearing higher heel dress shoes. So make a higher heeled running shoe, put like a wedge of foam in there. Because the original Nike shoe was pretty, pardon me, I get the hiccups, pretty flat and not very high. Uh, it was a great shoe, actually. So anyway, um, Bowerman did that, you know, ended up making shoes that looked like things like this. And a friend of mine, a guy who worked directly with Bill Bowerman for about 30 years at Nike, was at a track meet with one of those podiatrists a number of years ago and said, your design idea, the elevated heel padded motion control shoe has become ubiquitous. Every, I mean, that is the design of all modern athletic footwear. It was your idea. What do you think about that? And the doctor said, um, it was the biggest mistake we ever made. Really? Yeah. He said, we'd had no evidence for this Achilles shortening idea. And we've seen that 
all the things that that led to have caused problems. Mm. And, but it's too late. I mean, that ship has sailed. Um, we know people in every major footwear brand who have said the natural movement thing, totally legit. We can't do it because it would be admitting that everything we've said for 50 years is a lie. Hmm. They know it. Here, here's, here's a proof about how they know it. Nike did a study on a new shoe they developed and they compared it to their best-selling motion controlled padded elevated heel running shoe. Hmm. And the way the results of the study were pitched to the media was new shoe reduces injuries by 52%. It's true, but then you have to look at the numbers. The best-selling shoe injured over 30% of the people in under 12 weeks. The new shoe only injured about 15%. It's about one out of seven. How is that good? How is that the best you can do? And here's the kicker. What made it better is that it got rid, they've said, got rid of many of the protective features in the other shoe. If you look at that shoe now, they've added the protective features back in because they can't tell two stories. They can't tell a, you don't need all this motion control, padding, art support, et cetera. And yes, you do. Right. So they're stuck with, yes, you do. Right, right. They, they, they've committed to the narrative. Yep. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot and of money wrapped up in that. Totally. And they've been telling the story for 50 years. So now they don't really even need to tell the story because everyone believes it. They just need to tell, here's a better version of what you already believe, despite the fact that the better version has never been proven to be better. And they've never said, by the way, sorry about that crap we've been selling for the last five years. We thought that was good, but we were wrong. They've never said that. And also, you know, it's interesting, like people... It's the same thing, like, you know, when people eat things, it's like often there, I think there's this, like, unless it's a, some sort of medicine, yeah, there's not this innate understanding that, like, because they're putting a, some sort of food in their mouth and that it's going to go down, that it could possibly affect what's happening in their brain, <laughs> right? And it's yeah. the same with shoes where it's almost like, well, this is something that's only going to affect my foot, right. not realizing that it all moves upstream, yep. ankles, knees, hips, back, back shoulders, neck. neck, everything. I mean- everything begins there. That is your connection to the ground. Yep. Well, here's the simplest thing. You've got all these nerve endings in the sole of your feet more than anywhere, but your fingertips and your lips. That's not an accident. That's to tell your brain what's going on with your feet. So your brain knows how to control your body, starting with your feet, which also have more bones and joints. Well, a quarter of the bones and joints of your whole body in your feet and ankles, clearly for balance, agility, mobility. If you don't get the information to the brain, the brain can't send the information back down to handle balance, agility, mobility. And if you don't use that circuit at all, it just gets atrophied and then you lose all of that function. And it all starts with the feet. So your brain is quite malleable. It's quite plastic. If, it, if it's not getting the information that it's looking for, it just shuts that section down, basically. Use and it or lose it. It's all use it or lose it. This is what I, I say the research about minimalist footwear is the dumbest science ever done because most of it is just trying to prove use it or lose it. Not trying to, proving use it or lose it. Why do we need to do research to prove use it or lose it? We're not the intervention. The intervention is the modern athletic shoe. Where's the evidence that that improves anything? And there is none. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I'm curious, like uh, when you're not out either working or practicing or training or doing all the things that kind of take you through like the moves of, of, you know, in the world of everyday life. Do you also try to be barefoot as often as possible? Yeah. I'm barefoot more often than anything else. In fact, um, uh, and when I'm not barefoot, I wear mismatched colored shoes. Wait, hold on. I don't know if you can see. Yeah. 
So I'm in Costco a little while ago in line at the pharmacy. And the, the guy behind me says, hey, your shoes don't match. And the pharmacist, without looking or missing a beat, says, he's wearing shoes? <laughs> so um, I spend a, most of my time barefoot. Yeah. Well, I think that's the other part that like, um, so they, they runs parallel with the minimalist uh, like footwear movement. Yeah. And also this thing of like people need to, you know, be educated at least on like just, just the benefits of being barefoot. Just it's, like, you know, be, it's, be without something on you as much as possible as well. Well, when people ask me, um, especially here in Colorado in the winter, <laughs> when I'm off in barefoot, um, they go, uh, and I love it when kids do it. They'll say, mommy, he's not wearing shoes. And then um, they'll say, why aren't you wearing shoes? I go, well, do you like wearing shoes? They go, no, I go, me either. <laughs> and, uh, or um, I say, it's just fun. Or I say to adults, I go, if we were at the beach, would you ask me that question? And they go, no, I go, eh, just pretend we're at the beach. So it's, it's enjoyable. I, I, and now, I'm not saying it starts that way for everybody. And there's some surfaces that you don't want to walk on in bare feet. Um, but there's something about it that just feels good getting stimulation from different surfaces and using your feet. Um, and clearly there's, again, situations where it's not ideal. That's why we started zero shoes. And uh, we also know that not everyone's going to go barefoot. What, you know, I'll tell you something really interesting. If you walk around barefoot, you will notice people noticing you from a very far distance. Like for whatever reason, we are really, really wired to pay attention to other people's feet. Because even when I wear mismatched shoes, people notice me from very far away. And I mean, that's why I do it, frankly. But, um, but it's, it's peculiar to me that we're so attentive to that. Like the Vibram, the five finger shoes. Uh, the, you know, I like to say they're great if you want to look like a dork. But why do we think that it makes you look like a dork to have something that's just, you know, a glove for your foot? Yeah. But it does. I can't explain it. So it's a fascinating thing about how we're wired to relate to feet that I don't fully understand. And I've never met anyone who seems to, to understand it. I remember I got to take a dance workshop with this guy, Martin Kilvati, who's out in Europe. And he practices improvisation and does like, you know, really kind of out there things and is totally content doing them in public. There's, I think there's a great video of him, you know, totally misusing gym equipment. Um, <laughs> but someone asked him a question because he was talking about, you know, dancing like um, on a beach somewhere and, and, and it being like kind of culturally or societally like weird, right? right? Like what you're saying about the shoes. Meanwhile, there are people like surfing and, and riding wave runners and all these things. And his response was kind of like, I don't know when I see this person with like a piece of plastic strapped to their feet, that looks weird. Yeah. Like what I'm doing, I'm just using my body. You, you want to, you want here's a great story. That's uh, similar to that. I don't know if it's true or not, mm -hmm. um, but the story that I heard was there's a guy who's on a train and uh, in the boot, in the cabin with him is another guy. And they start talking and the other guy happens to be Picasso. Mm -hmm. And the first person in the train says, you know, I, I've got to be honest after a while, they're, became somewhat friendly. He says, I got to be honest, I'm not really a big fan of your work. And Picasso says, well, really, why is that? He goes, it just doesn't seem, it, I mean, it doesn't look real. And Picasso says, what do you mean? And the guy reaches into his wallet and pulls out a photo and hands it to him. He goes, that's a picture of my wife. She looks just like that. And Picasso goes, oh my God, she's so tiny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard this one somewhere as well. Oh, yeah. 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 I hope it's, it's true. A good one. Yeah. yeah. Me too.
the yeah. other the other Picasso story is he was having uh, uh, some renovations done in his house, and so the contractor shows up and says, you know, what do you want for the bathroom? And he goes, you know, like this and this and this and this. And the contractor says, yeah, I can do that. And Picasso says, what's it going to cost? And, and the guy says, just sign that napkin. You just did that drawing on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't heard that one. I like that one though. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting the things that we decide are kind of, you know, normal they become familiar in certain ways. Yeah, and then it's you know, and, and I feel like um, it's it's threatening to feel like uh, your either your identity or your cultural identity or your societal identity is being challenged. Right? Oh well, um, I have a theory about that. So there, a we're wired to fit in with a group. I mean, that's how we evolved mm -hmm. and anything you do that stands out from the group is potentially threatening and our literal, uh, so our very sense of self is a complex overlap of neurological processes. And I think that beliefs, including beliefs about what's appropriate or not, um, which is just another kind of belief are held neurologically in a similar way to our very sense of self. And so when you challenge someone's belief, like, I'm not wearing shoes. Uh, it makes people really uncomfortable, like something dangerous is about to happen. And and I, I say this in a there's a weird context where um, I have a friend who used to bring uh, people to a brunch that we would have every Sunday to because they believed conspiracy theories essentially, and he wanted me to challenge them or vice versa. And people would present me with this conspiracy theory, and um, one guy in particular, it was pr brilliant. He gives me this whole sort of treatise. And then says, all right, now I take on challenge what I just told you. And so I start doing it. I don't give him any position that opposes his. I'm just picking apart the logical problems and what he had just told me. And he started getting really angry and said something like, well, you're just you know, arguing with me. I said, but that's what you told me to do. You told me to present you know, something. And I'm just starting with the problems with your argument. But he was responding as if I was trying to physically harm him and his children. And it was fascinating. Like, why would something you believe cause that much angst if somebody just asked you to question it? I'm not even asking them to not believe it. I'm just saying, take a look at this and see if that makes sense to you. Right. And, and it put him in a state of, of panic and terror. Right. Because these beliefs are so tightly intertwined with like the story of who we think we are. Exactly so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I... Now, here's a, and here's a funny version of that. One day I'm walking into the office. It's a hot summer day. I'm in a pair of you know, cargo shorts. I got my Zero Shoes t-shirt on, one that was kind of raggedy by that point. My hair was particularly big that day. And I catch my reflection in the window and I go, oh, I'm that guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know I was that guy. I'm, I'm cool with being that guy, but I didn't know. Well, that's probably a good sign though that you don't look in mirrors very often. Oh my God. Um, I, yeah. Mirrors are weird. Don't you think? I am. I've brought it up on so many times and I, you know, you, do you, you know, Frank Forensic, huh. super an animal. Mm -mm. Um, oh man, you, you, you should totally uh, check out Frank. Um, I had him on the podcast, but he wrote a great book called exuberant animal. Oh, um, that sounds really familiar. Okay. But he's got a whole section in there on like, don't look in the mirror, like mirrors, mirrors are doing us a disservice. I, um, yeah, I find I think them. It, I think it was in that book. Sorry. I, this is so strange to say. I just find them very peculiar. So like there's times where I look at a mirror and I'm trying to imagine, actually, it's really funny. Two things. 
I'm trying to imagine how other people see me because I'm seeing the opposite of what they see. Mm. And it's also sometimes I, I don't, it's not that I don't recognize myself, but if you ask me to describe what I look like, the only thing I can do is imagine what I see in a mirror and try to remember that, which doesn't seem accurate. So there's a guy that I know who made a product called the true mirror. And so it's essentially two mirrors at a 45 degree or 90 degree angle. And the seam between the two is imperceptible. And so when you look in the mirror, you're seeing yourself reversed from when you look in a flat mirror. So you're seeing yourself the way other people see you. And I used to have, it's in a box. And I used to have one of these in our guest bathroom on a, on a shelf. And I would hear people like go into the bathroom. And then at some point you'd hear them go, what the, wait, wait, what? And they'd be very confused. And I had a regular mirror next to it. And they'd go back and forth between the regular mirror, what you're used to seeing and the true mirror, the way other people see you. And they were often very upset because they didn't like what they saw in the quote, true mirror. It was fascinating. Yeah. I, I mean, I think um, at most other times in history, we would not have gotten so many glimpses of ourselves. No. You know, and no, I think it reinforces a, these stories of like who we think we're supposed to be or who we think we are and things you like know, that. There's a tradition in Judaism that when you're mourning someone's death, you cover up all the mirrors. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. It's fascinating. It's like, yeah. it's not about, you know, this is not a time to be attentive to who you think you are, what you think you look like. This is a time to deal with the grief and, and the other people that are there to help you with that grief. Yeah. Um, so, you know, don't, don't shortchange yourself. I had a brilliant theater teacher when I was in college and he used to say, do yourselves a, a service and cover up all the mirrors in your house. <laughs> like, it's just going to, it's just going to cause you to get in your own way. What about scales? Uh, oh, wait. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't use one. I'm not a fan, but I know that, you know, everybody's kind of going through their own unique journey, but yeah. I, what about uh, you? I, I'm, I'm, I check it every morning. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm mostly cause I'm, well, I'm curious for one, I would love to drop five to seven pounds of body fat. It would give me a better strength to weight ratio as a sprinter mm -hmm. at 60. That's really hard to do. <laughs> um, and sometimes, um, and it's actually weirder. So I have a particular obsession with uh, body shape things. So from the time earliest memory I have, like first, second grade, I remember practicing walking down the hallway in my elementary school to kind of look stronger or look bigger or look something. When I wake up in the morning, I roll out of bed and I kind of pinch to see what the fat feels like around my belly button as if somehow overnight I had run a marathon and dropped 20 pounds. Um, but I do it every morning as I'm rolling out of bed. It's a, it's a very comical habit because I don't know what I expect to have happen. Mm -hmm. I didn't do anything dramatic that would make a change, but I'm, uh, but it's one of my weird little neurotic somethings. And so now I just find it kind of funny that I do it since it has no real value <laughs> to me, but I do it anyway. And so, um, you know, yeah, whatever. It's one of those kind of stupid things. We all have something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate like the, uh, I don't know, the honesty and vulnerability around that, you know what I mean? Because that's, um, I don't know, they're, they're important things that like, I think people often carry these, these little quirks column through oh, their yeah. life that and, people are afraid to admit to them, you know? Well, and, and look, keep in mind, I'm not like 15% body fat. I'm not, you know, some, I'm not seriously overweight or anything. So the fact that someone 
in my, and, and I don't have body dysmorphia. I'm not obsessed with trying to do something, but, but it is interesting. Like I had a friend say to me on a walk one day, I'm just trying to listen to my body. So I know what to eat. And I cracked up. I literally fell on the ground laughing. And she's why I said, well, first of all, I used to say things like that, but I can give you the answer. I know what your body wants to eat. French fries and ice cream, chocolate cake would be even better mm-hmm. Let's look for calories. And you have the idea that you could do this thing called listening to your body whatever that means, that if you did that, you would end up eating something that would then transform your body into a shape that you prefer, and then you would be happy. Mm-hmm. Every part of that sentence does not actually work. Right. So, um, so that's all very silly. But if you want to have fun, go ask as many people as possible, especially people who have the body that you think you want, if they're happy, even if they're happy with their body. And I guarantee you won't find one who is. Mm. And if you do that with enough people, maybe when that thought comes up that I'd be happier if my body were in a different shape, maybe it would mean as little to you as I'm an alien from Alpha Centauri, if that thought popped into your head. It's just one of those things your brain does because that's what it does. Yeah. doesn't mean it's true. doesn't mean it's just like, in fact, there's a book called Stumbling on Happiness and the to cut to the end of the story, it says the secret of happiness is find people who have what you think it takes to be happy, see if they're happier than you are. And the odds are that they're not. And eventually you'll get over believing that thought that still will arise in your mind, but you just won't believe it anymore. And that'll add a layer of contentment that um, you would never get if you got the thing that you think you needed. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the story, right? Of uh, the world we live in people Absolutely. Time traveling constantly, like what they think they are supposed to be, what they didn't do yesterday that would have made them to what they think they're supposed to be today. When it comes to kind of the, a lot of the issues we're talking about, I mean, so many of these things are funny, modern, not funny, they're tragic in a lot of ways, like modern issues that come from like a culture of abundance, right? Well, the abundance come, was not so, so available in the past. When, I think it came from things like we didn't evolve to be able to see bacteria in water. So we had to become hypersensitive to what happened if we drank the water and whether whatever was in it is going to cause a problem or not. And now we don't need to pay attention to things like that, but uh, that part of our brain is still looking for problems because you needed to find the problems in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we live in a world where most of the problems that we had that could have killed us in the past uh, whether it's fitting in or eating the right food are not issues anymore, but that part of your brain is still going. Larry David had a, uh, was interviewed by Charlie Rose <clears throat> and Charlie said something like, you know, you've made hundreds of millions of dollars from Seinfeld syndication rights. And Larry was very reluctant to admit that that was true. And he finally did. And, uh, and then uh, Charlie Rose says, do you not worry about money anymore? And Larry says, when I was poor, I used to go grocery shopping at two in the morning and I would have to buy a can of soup with the change that I found. And I didn't want anyone to see me. I now no longer have to worry about money like that. But the part of my brain that bought soup with change at three in the morning has a lot to do still. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like that primitive part of our brain that's like, we haven't evolved past these things. Not, not even close. I know you got to run. I, I do. Try and get you out of here on time. So if people want to, um, I don't know, connect with you, connect, get, get, <laughs> considering, get, what, considering what this conversation was, if people want to, I don't know, whatever. If they, whatever. If they want, yeah. If they want to, you know, connect with you, shoes, 
and you know get you on the <laughs> phone and, and and hear some of your jokes <laughs> uh, well the the way you find what i'm doing is uh, zero shoes and that's x-e-r-o shoes.com or at zero shoes or slash zero shoes wherever you happen to at or slash um, and then uh, actually in a lot of the email that we send out, I've got my personal phone number if you want to reach out, which means about three times a week, there's conversations that sound like this. Hi, this is Steven. Oh my God. Cause uh, people don't believe that I do that, but I do. And so, um, uh, now I don't make it super easy to find me, but I make it relatively easy to find me. And often I have to let the call go to voicemail cause I'm busy, but, um, but nonetheless, you know, happy to talk to people and, um, help them have a happier, healthier life feet first. I also saw that you're, I got an email. I forget if it was from you or if it was from REI that like uh, if you buy zero shoes at REI, there's a relationship. There was, there. A, well, REI is carrying our products and we were just helping people know that REI is carrying a lot of our products. And we had a, we, there was a special going on at that a um, couple of weeks ago, um, just to let people know that, but that is long in uh, the past. Okay. All right. But suffice it to say, I mean, we're at zeroshoes.com. We are on Amazon as well. We're in about 500 stores around the world. If you go to our website, there's a store locator and we're not in everywhere yet. Um, but if there's a store that you think that should be carrying us, then let us know and we will reach out to them. And uh, um, our business is growing very quickly. So we're going to be in a lot more places very soon. Damn. And you'll be getting more phone calls. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Amazing. Thanks, man. Pleasure. This has been a real treat.